episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I'm Jennifer Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We're the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative waves like our graphic novels, pocket guides, animated videos, and social media. Uh, I'm joined today by my colleague, Professor Jason Hill, who is one of the senior scholars at the Atlas Society, and without whom this interview would probably not be taking place since he's the one who brought Jonathan Emord and his excellent new book, uh, The Authoritarians, to my attention. I'm going to introduce Jonathan, but before I do that, I wanted to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, please go ahead and start typing your comments or your questions into the, uh, the comment stream. We're really gonna try to get to as many of them as we can, so have at it. Um, Jonathan Emord is one of the nation's top constitutional lawyers. He's the author of five books, including Freedom, Technology, and the First Amendment, Global Censorship of Health Information, and most recently, The Authoritarians, Their Assault on Individual Liberty, the Constitution, and Free Enterprise from the 19th century to the present. Throughout his 35-year career practicing constitutional and administrative law before federal courts, he has worked to achieve full First Amendment protection for speech and for the press, and he has the unique distinction of uh, having defeated the FDA eight times in federal court, more than uh, any other attorney in America. Jonathan, welcome again, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So um, I am going to uh, let my colleague, Professor Hill, jump in here in just a moment. But I wanted to, uh, to first get to one of your earlier books, which was The Rise of Tyranny. You focused on the delegation of legislative, executive, and judicial powers to, I was surprised to learn, over 200 independent regulatory commissions since the 1930s. Uh, regulatory agencies that enact over 90% of all federal law. Um, you pointed out a tendency of such agencies to become captives of the industries that they regulate, citing the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry as uh, an example and uh, a case for concern. Have I'm just curious, given where we are right now uh, in, in the many years after that book was written have your concerns been affected uh, one way or the other with the experience of the pandemic and the government's response yes i think it's gotten worse uh, the association between government and industry i think is closer today than ever before all across the board uh, particularly in the communications area we have uh, big tech uh, that is essentially performing a censorship role for the government. So it is at, at uh, the suggestion of leaders in the Democratic Party taking action to censor conservative communication. Um, and uh, it, it comes in a form that uh, traditional jurisprudence doesn't seem to uh, latch on to a lot of a lot of parties have said, hey, look, this is not censorship. Censorship only is that which is brought about by the government. These are private parties. They're exercising independent editorial control over their fora. The problem with that argument is that they bought into a regulatory regime where they became common carriers. And they they argued to the uh, government at the time that it passed the uh, Communications Act, the, the amendments. That, uh, that they were um, a common carrier, that they would not engage in editorial discrimination. They wouldn't uh, delete communication based on its content. And indeed, they were given legal protection against liability for that. Well, they've violated that trust in that now actually they're very, very much tied to leading Democrats 
and uh, they have enabled uh, Democrats to win uh, uh, elective office in no small measure because of censorship of information. And they are promoting, for example, a complete censorship of alternatives to a standard vaccine uh, treatment for COVID. It, the, the mere suggestion of other treatments is, 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 is blocked on the web. Uh, any, any, any effort in that regard. So that's just one example. Um, there are many examples that we could discuss, but that's an, an example, I think, of, of that extension. I would say that it does violate the First Amendment because the First Amendment does restrict government, but when government uses industry to achieve its own ends, uh, that is a government action, and I think it should be recognized as such. You also wrote global censorship of health information uh, at least a decade prior to current concerns um, about to what extent information about COVID, its origins, potential therapies and vaccine efficacy and side effects uh, is being filtered um, according to political interests. And um, while that book focuses more on efforts of government agencies to limit nutrition claims by food supplements uh, companies. Um, one of the things that I found most striking, uh, having run a nutrition institute myself and having tangled with the FDA uh, in the past over simply wanting to say, you know, bananas are, are you know, have potassium and they might be good for this health uh, concern and and having been told that you know we we absolutely couldn't do things like that um but just how absent in the current discussion about covid is uh nutrition and and diet um when it comes to reducing your your risk of covid um so do, do some of the dynamics that you identified in the book have implications that have skewed the way that we're thinking about immunity in the face of a contagious virus? Very definitely. We have a government uh, voice that in this instance, the government is saying that's the only voice that may be heard, uh, that any other competing voice is considered not only uh, one to be debated, Beyond that, it's, it's one to be censored. And so they are not allowing uh, a multiplicity of voices about scientific information. Science is, is, is somehow considered to be holy when it's communicated from the government uh, platform. But when science arises elsewhere, they censor it. When science becomes competitive with that view articulated by government, they get rid of it. This is Lysenkoism. This is a form of Lysenkoism and it is censorship. And what happens is a, a, a large amount of information, particularly in the area of nutrition, but also in the area of drugs, uh, is kept away from people so that they go uh, completely unaware of what they should do in order to reduce the severity of the disease if they, if they contract it. For example, just one example, omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids, there's an enormous amount of literature supporting their anti-inflammatory role. Uh, inflammation is a key factor in the progression of this disease with the spike proteins wreaking havoc throughout your body and all your organ systems. So omega-3 fatty acids consumed daily not only reduce the risk of vascular disease as I uh, proved in one a case over that matter against the FDA, uh, it also you know, eliminates, helps reduce inflammation. Also, such things as uh, if you go to any hospital and you have COVID-like symptoms, they'll frequently prescribe uh, ibuprofen. Ibuprofen actually increases the number of ACE2 receptor cells in your body, thus causing the disease to expand, that is to, to become more prolific throughout your body. So you certainly don't want to take ibuprofen, but there's no allowance for discussion of this in the marketplace. What you should be taking is aspirin instead, because aspirin doesn't have that effect and it's also a pain reliever. Aspirin is far more effective because it doesn't increase the number of ACE2 receptors. That, this is just a little bit of the information. Ivermectin, for example, and hydroxychloroquine world round have been found to be effective therapies. The evidence that, for example, ivermectin is effective in treating COVID and particularly when uh, administered early on with symptoms is extraordinary. Uh, many people have had their lives saved by ivermectin, and yet, um, 
and, and hydroxychloroquine. And yet, because uh, Dr. Fauci has ruled them out uh, as treatments and is focusing entirely on the vaccine, which increasingly becomes a treatment because the vaccine isn't what they promised it would be, um, people are denied access to that information. The consequence is great. There are people who are dying in America because they do not know that they ought to be taking ivermectin or that they ought to try hydroxychloroquine. And any debate as to the scientific merits of that is, is just eliminated entirely from the market. And the effect of that is, of course, to rob us of innovation. We only innovate in science, as we do in most, uh, most areas, by an open marketplace of ideas in which individuals are allowed to contest. And we are given the privilege of reading it all and evaluating for ourselves what we consider to be in our own best interest. This, in classic uh, collectivist uh, uh, thinking, uh, the government has said, oh, no, we're the experts and we'll divine for you what is right. And what we say is everyone should be vaccinated. And that's the only answer. They, 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 they're Luddites. The only thing they offer is a vaccine. And now they're embarrassed because their vaccine is not as effective as they promised. It looks as though after four or five months, the degree of immunity drops precipitously. And so what do they do? They don't look for innovation. They don't invite it. They don't invite the critics of the vaccine who are in the scientific community to offer opinion. Instead, they say, oh, no, get more vaccines. Uh, be vaccinated again and again and again. So you'll be uh, a person who's riddled with spike proteins delivered by the vaccine. There's no long-term safety studies on those. There's no long-term safety study indicating the extent to which multiple injections with these spike proteins into your body will uh, will cause problems for you down the road. So I'd rather stick with things that we know. Ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine have an enormous history of safe use across the world. So why not give it a go if uh, if that's a safer approach? But they won't they won't let us say that. Well, I want to switch gears uh, now to your your most recent book, uh, The Authoritarians. It is a historically and philosophically sweeping account of the 19th century to the present of trends and efforts to undermine um, constitutional limits on government. Yet the, um, and, and I want to bring uh, Professor Hill in here because he was absolutely uh, passionately been recommending uh, that we get you on the show. And so um, perhaps Jason, you can kick it off by telling us what it was that you found uh, most, most salient and most important about, uh, about this book at this time. Well, a number of things. Um, and again, welcome Jonathan uh, to the show. It's so great to have you here. Um, I'd read a number of texts or books on you know America's decline and on America's precipitous road towards authoritarianism but what I had not really um, encountered was a sort of um, minute and 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 detailed historical research on the antecedents right most of us sort of myself included although I have read a lot of critical theory and I've read a lot of German idealism, and I've been acquainted with the Frankfurt School. I've done work with them for, for over a decade. <clears throat> I've not taken the time to explain to people when they say, well, how do we get here? You know, I've said, well, the 60s. And I, it's just, it's easy to point to the 60s. And Jonathan, Jonathan's not satisfied with resting with the 60s. He's, he points to the decline of classical liberalism and the decline of America going back to, this, to, to, to 19th century Germany. And, and, and ties the philosopher John Dewey's philosopher of education and his progressivism and his brand of socialism along with Franklin D. Roosevelt. And today we would call these people woke. Well, where did their, where, where did their wokeism arise? It arose from a philosophic system <clears throat> in 19th century Germany. And that's the thing I found fascinating about Jonathan's book, that he did this legwork that could explain to people that this did not just arise out of a vacuum or nor did it arise out of the 1960s. The 1960s, those individuals are the legatees, the beneficiaries of a philosophic system that they inherited. It's taken a long time for the chickens to come home and roost, but the eggs are finally hatched and we see these ugly ducklings 
walking around who are destroying our culture. So kudos to this book and to, John, to Jonathan for writing this book. Um, yeah. Well, I, I might say that uh, I'm a big fan of yours. And so I, when you say these things, they, if I'm not blushing, I should be. I, uh, I'm very, very uh, humbled by what you say because I, I, I did take a different approach in that I looked at the history anew and I, I really start most of my assessment um, from this constitutional law perspective, which is not, I don't mean to say it's the modern constitutional law, which really is a deconstruction of the constitution in academia, but it's the founding principles and asking myself, uh, what are the greatest threats to the founding principles of this country? And that's where I fall upon this, this history that uh, was shocking. See that in the antebellum South, uh, ideology very akin to what we're seeing now advocated by uh, the far left um, was commonplace among uh, pro-slavery advocates uh, in the 1830s. That is essentially Hegelian socialism. Uh, collectivism, they called it with Hegel, but it's really the, uh, the origin, as we know, of socialism. And uh, Karl Marx was a student of Friedrich Hegel, and he merely advanced it to a more um, applicable uh, and violent um, ideology that is replicated today in the far left thinking. Um, but to see that this glorious thing, the Declaration of Independence, the second paragraph of which really defines what it means to be an American, um, uh, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with uh, unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that governments are instituted among men to protect the rights of the governed, and that just governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. These, these principles are the very essence of the genius that is the American experiment. And that was kicked off nowhere else in the world and nowhere else since. Uh, but here, here it started. So I look at the threats to that and nearly um, 100 years after the founding, we have these enormous struggles arising and uh, parties that are interested more in efficiency of government in achieving what they considered to be the common good and imposing it on others, they found these impediments to the exercise of power in the constitution and they wished to defeat them. And so people like, for example, many people were shocked by this, but it's in the book in detail, Felix Frankfurter, for example, Felix Frankfurter was a socialist. He, uh, as a boy, he emigrated to the United States, uh, lived in, in the Bronx and would go to lectures repeatedly, love them, uh, to hear the socialist speakers, the socialist labor speakers and communists who he admired greatly. And he absolutely despised free enterprise. Uh, and he shared much in common with Louis Brandeis in this regard, who he viewed as a mentor. And then he went on to uh, become a member of the Fabian Society in England, uh, the pre precursor of the British labor movement. And he advocated all of the British labor movement policies, uh, and which were very socialistic. And then he became a, a strong advocate in law school of the Progressive Party. And the Progressive Party of 1924 was, uh, if anything, farther to the left of Bernie Sanders today. And then he became very influential with Theodore or Franklin Roosevelt. And he ended up being the grandfather or the father, I should say, of the administrative state. Uh, his whole concept that administrative law could circumvent the constitution was overt. He wanted to defeat the separation of powers. He wanted to invest in single hands, legislative, executive and judicial power and thereby create a autocratic uh, regime, an authoritarian regime that would be independent of the Constitution's allocation of power. And suddenly you have this system by the time of the New Deal 
where the overwhelming majority of powers exercised are suffering no constitutional check because they're being wielded by institutions that the constitution doesn't even contemplate. Indeed, the vesting clauses of articles one, two, and three would deny the creation of an administrative state, and yet they created it. They didn't do it through constitutional amendment through article five because they didn't believe in the constitution. Woodrow Wilson despised the declaration, for example, major progressive. He believed that, he said that you should get rid of the, par the, the initial paragraphs in the declaration because they were just mere surplusage. And he despised the whole concept of limited power. Uh, he thought there was no problem that government ought not solve by imposing the will of elites like himself on the population. Now, he couldn't achieve that in his time, but he laid down the marker for it. And it's not just the Democrats who did this, it's also the Republicans who were part and parcel of the expansion of the administrative state. Richard Nixon was a major proponent of the expansion of the administrative state. Of course, we got wage and price controls from Richard Nixon, so little did he respect the free market. So, well, I'm, I'm saying too much and not allowing you to ask me questions. <laughs> so Jason, I'm gonna let you ask a couple more questions, but we also have a few questions from our audience that I'd love to, to run by you, Jonathan. Uh, Scott on YouTube asks, is anyone promoting any uh, kind of legal reform to deal with what many see as uh, a strong progressive bias throughout the legal field now? Um, there's the Campaign for Liberty, which uh, Norm Singleton heads, uh, Ron Paul, um, he used to be the uh, legislative director for Ron Paul. Um, there are many libertarian legal organizations uh, that uh, sue the government variously. There are people like me who my whole career I've been suing the government. I just, I did it even though I'm doing it in a for-profit uh, mode. I'm representing companies and individuals and scientists who have been restricted or censored or have had their lives altered fundamentally without just cause. And I've uh, spent you know 35 years suing the government. So there are precious few of us, I might add, um, but there are those who are swinging the ax in the other direction. Um, I think the greatest opportunity for legal reform to protect the constitution has to, arise from a popular movement to, uh, to, to clip the wings of the uh, Democrats and to replace them with Republicans and to bring about, uh, and I say that only because today the Democratic Party is synonymous with the far left and the Republican Party is the only uh, vehicle left for us to effectively alter that course. But um, when we put in a majority who are dedicated to elimination of the administrative state, which is I, I advocate, and restoring the rule of law and positive law instead of prior restraints as the normative way of proceeding, then uh, it, we might have a chance of putting back the power into the limits just defined by the constitution and uh, creating a nation where liberty is the most precious uh, uh, value that is protected by the state. The state should be in the business of limiting its powers to protect the expansion of liberty. We should constantly be mindful that the constitution meant for the individual to be sovereign, but with that sovereignty comes individual responsibility. And it also, you carry with that the burden of your own baggage and your own problems. So you can't look to have a nanny state uh, and we have to divorce the public of the idea that the nanny state can cause them to have a higher standard of living. I, I think the typical person out there today actually believes that you can have a wealthy existence if only the government redistributes the wealth of the very smallest percentage of the population to the rest of the country. Now, as Margaret Thatcher said, you know, uh, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money paraphrase her. And that's, of course, what happens as soon as you go through a couple of these rounds of 
of uh, destroying the wealth generating uh, individuals and institutions and redistributing it to the population, you end up with everyone impoverished because it's not enough to uh, increase the economic circumstance of someone for a lifetime, let alone a year or two. And yet you've taken down the very engines of productivity and growth that are responsible for the generation of that income. So you end up like Venezuela in no time. And if they just think beyond the moment, uh, get out of the haze of the COVID lockdown environment and, and accept a minimal dose of realism, they should come to the conclusion that it's been a pipe dream that they've been sold by the Democratic Party and that pilfering other people's goods and services uh, to, to the nth degree is no way to ensure the creation of goods and services. It's the best way to destroy them. Jason, you want to jump in there? Well, it's sort of a follow-up question to, to what uh, the question asked and, and a response to Jonathan. So Jonathan, my question is, um, when I you know, read your book I, and I read about Wilson and, and more particular, the president that you've defined as the worst president, giving away a little bit of your book, but not why, is uh, is Franklin D. Roosevelt. My question to you is, it's, it reads like there's been a sort of moral eugenics program that's been foisted on the American people, um, where this sort of entitlement mentality and this sense of entitlement uh, is seen as a birthright. So my question is, how do we undo, or how is that entitlement mentality undone? Is it simply by removing the poison, which is the welfare state? Or is there something like a re-socialization of people's sensibilities? I, I don't believe in government-funded schools um, anymore. I used to at one time. I've been converted um, through reason and through observation. But it's a serious question that I want, I'd like you to address. That is, is it just simply by implementing a, a kind of administrative body of administrative government that um, that is not predicated on the welfare state that is that comes close to approximating capitalism and through default through force through 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 sheer necessity people will be forced to to revisit and to re to to re re-socialize themselves or is there some larger work that is to be done by intellectuals by by by, by activists in reschooling people's sensibilities on a different level, because among other, and I'll stop here, among other things, what I came to this country 36 years ago under Mr. Reagan, and you know I worked 45 hours to put myself through school before getting a scholarship to get my PhD, but I never for once, and the immigrants that of my generation, I'm 56, never thought that anything was owed to them by America. We just thought, keep out of our way, do not obstruct any efforts that we might manifest on behalf of our lives. And there's been a, a tremendous shift now where you have illegal immigrants who think they not only have the right to vote, but they also are entitled to a house and a job and a car and, and whatnot. So how do we, how do we begin this, 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 I call it sort of re-socialization, maybe that's a mawkishly bad word, but how do we begin this process of shifting the sensibilities of people? I think uh, basic honesty is a good approach. And the truth is, if people will only listen to it, that socialism is a bankrupt idea. It just doesn't work. Um, you can be promised any number of things and you can view yourself as entitled to that, those things. But when they're given to you, they come at a cost. And that cost is either inflation or, or taxation or both. So it's, it's a false paradigm. The idea that there is free education, free healthcare, free this and free that is entirely absurd because it's not free. Anything of value is not free. The question is who bears the cost? Well, they're saying, well, I'm receiving these goods and I'm not bearing the cost, so I'm all for it. But what they don't understand is that they are actually paying for these goods and they're paying for it in a, in a series of ways that are indirect, but very, very uh, devastating to them. And those ways are one, inflation, two, taxation, three, 
the reduction in, in innovation and uh, the sophistication of the care with which they, they, they will get because they're going to get rationed care or they're going to get rationed education. They're going to get less quality. They will, there can be universality, but it will be at an enormous expense that's unsustainable and with a degree of quality that is, that is a modicum of above nothing. So that you end up with false promises. You either go through this horror like Venezuelans and you, you, you accept it because you're, you're, you're unwilling to be, have your mind open to the reality, the truth, uh, or you can do something else, which this is where I think you come in, Professor Hill, in your books and where politicians uh, ought to be uh, taking uh, a lesson from you and from others, that this is an opportunity society. That is to say, so long as you are free, you can achieve. And that every time you create a artificial paradigm that limits your potential and then, then adopt it as law, you are artificially preventing us from enjoying those natural fruits that come from our freedoms. I mean, to be free to innovate without excessive regulation enables you to overcome all sorts of things. If the only limitation that I have is not on my freedom of speech and not on my ability to innovate, but simply on the extent to which I can comprehend something, I'm in as free a state as possible and in the best position to maximize my own uh, self-interest and, and benefit and health and everything else. So if we focus on an opportunity society, on the notion that if you have a free market that is, is, is maximized and a government that's minimized, you will have the greatest opportunity, the greatest diversity of products, goods, services, the greatest innovation, the greatest chance to raise the standard of living and that that has historically been the case. That while you may not uh, understand or, or agree with uh, the invisible hand concept of Adam Smith, it is very much true. And the reason yeah. why it's true, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just gonna jump in there um, I, to respond to Professor Hill's uh, question. And I have a, you know, a, agree with you on the whole, I've perhaps a, a slightly different take on it because I think we do need to discuss um, the economic consequences. We do need to provide historical context. I, I think we need to talk about the law and talk about legal remedies. But at, at the end of the day, um, I, I think it's absolutely vital because we have been doing that. You know, Cato Institute has been around. You were there. I was there. Uh, there, there are a lot of groups making, you know, the, the sort of economic policy arguments, but without really making the moral case to say, you know, even though Venezuela is right there for you to see, even though North Korea is right there for you to see, even though Cuba is right there for you to see, we don't even have to agree on whether or not factually, historically, socialism fails. Let's put a pause in that. Let's just put that in the, in the parking lot. And let's address the question about the morality of socialism, about whether or not it is right to be able to take from one person in order to give to another person, whether one as an individual has the right to determine their own autonomy and make decisions for themselves. So I, I guess that's, that's why I'm at the Atlas Society, because I believe that no one better than Ayn Rand made, made the case, and not just made the case in terms of, of the facts. She, she made it in a way that was designed you know, to appeal to people's imagination, which was designed to excite them, to intrigue them, to seduce them. And I, I think that those who wanna solve this problem really do need to think about how do we reach young people? And uh, you know, we can say, read a book. And I, I, I think I do want young people to read a book and that's why we have our book club. But, but in terms of actually 
getting through to them as if our lives depended on it, and it does, uh, finding ways to make it in their self-interest, make it delightful, make it fun, make it, um, make it something that's entertaining for them. And, and I, I think that's part of, the, part of our, our challenge as well. Um, so we have another question here, uh, going back to law uh, from YouTube. Peter Meteor asks, civil versus common law. Why is the mix, uh, why is the mix of the two? Why do lawyers have their own language? Why can we no longer enter into courts without filing paperwork created by the bar? Who runs the courts? So. Okay. Um, if I can speak a little, just a little bit to this point that you're raising about morality before I address that question. Sure. Um, I quite agree with you. I think that one of the, one of, there are many ways into this, but one way is the recognition that there are certain fundamental truths. I mean, most people do not dispute that we are born with free agency or should be free. That is to say, that individual freedom of choice is a defining characteristic of humanity. We wish to choose of our own accord and not have someone else dictate to us what we should choose. This is an underlying uh, indirect uh, argument that is raised by the BLM people and critical race theory people and so on that, that slavery is evil. Why is slavery evil? Because you have a master who denies you your individual liberty, who victimizes you and subjects you to their will. What we need to understand and what our young people need to appreciate is that it is morally evil in the same way as slavery to have the state be your master, to have the state take away from you freedom of choice and have the state dictate to you the direction of your life, what you may hear, what you may think about, what you may communicate about, all of those things, uh, cancel culture, this whole environment where dissent is not tolerated, means that you as an individual are less valuable. You have less freedom. You are sacrificed for someone else's view of what the common good is. And it's not just a view, it becomes the law and it becomes imposed upon you. Now shifting to, so, so it is immoral, absolutely, but it's immoral fundamentally because it divorces from humanity that characteristic that defines them, which is free agency. It takes away from you freedom. It circumscribes your freedom evermore until you end up being just a tool or an instrument or a robot of the state. And that is what you should fear most because once you lose your control, you are indeed a slave and you have no ability to, to rise to a level of happiness or self-fulfillment because it's, you're fulfilling the happiness of that person who gets to rule. That's it. Yeah. Well, so, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. Uh, in terms of connecting, you know, slavery is a, a moral evil, and then going deeper, you know, why, and what is the fundamental principle? And I think that's part of what we tried to do with our one of our animated videos on um, uh, on on slavery. On Frederick Douglass. My name is Frederick Douglass. And it was uh, interesting in the process to also learn that he was a contemporary with socialism and had something to say about it and described socialism as uh, a slavery of all uh, to all and as aberrant nonsense. So, um, yeah. John, as I explained in the book, you know, John C. Calhoun's mudsill theory, which Abraham Lincoln refuted, is exactly the, the struggle between socialism and capitalism, essentially, between a defense of free labor and the argument for slavery, the contrary, which Calhoun was justifying. So very much socialism is, is woven into all of this and, and stands for the defense of slavery. But the question that was asked about um, civil versus common law. So 
Um, common law is simply judge-made law. That is to say, when, when parties are, are uh, in court uh, contesting against one another, uh, the law will, have, uh, will be before the judge, but the judge may act in ways that fill in the inter interstices between the law and the facts that are unique in a certain case. That breadth or extension of law in decisions of a court constitute a common law. That is the English heritage that we acquired. Um, and so then the, the, the civil law or positive law created by legislatures um, is the other form of law. And then we have a third form that is not uh, a part of the question, but that is important to recognize. I, I believe it to be a third form of law and that's regulatory law, which constitutes prior restraints. What we want is to ensure that we don't have a collectivist law. That is to say, in, in the classical understanding, the law stands as a marker and individuals are assessed against it as to whether they have acted lawfully or unlawfully. But under the laws of the regulatory state, broad proscriptions, prior restraints are enacted and all who transgress those restraints are considered law violators, whether their actions are uh, themselves culpable or not. So a person, for example, could be completely, as one of my clients explained this in the authoritarians, completely innocent of any wrongdoing, who created a, a means to cause uh, what would be non-biodegradable plastics to become biodegradable. And and, and that innovation threatened industry uh, that had certain forms of biodegradable plastics that were not as competitive as this, actually not as good. And they, they resorted to lobbying the FTC and the FTC adopted a rule that arbitrarily defined anything that uh, did not completely break down into nature, uh, into elements within one year of uh, disposal could not be marketed as biodegradable. That remains the law to this day. And so something that would biodegrade, biodegrade over a long period of time, but nonetheless would save the environment of, of, of uh, conventional plastics would have huge value and would be understood to be biodegradable by every scientific definition or every understanding. But this arbitrary limit then is used to rule out everybody, whether they're helping, whether they're telling the truth or not, simply because it violates a decree. So. Um, that is, 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 is unlike something because it's not the product of elected representatives who are accountable to the people and can be removed from office, but, it, but an unelected bureaucracy that is in perpetuity capable of instituting restrictions that direct the nation into a quote unquote common good defined by the political leaders of these uh, agencies who are unelected, not accountable. It creates another area of law. So those are the differences. Civil laws tends to be positive law. Common law is the uh, filling in of the law by judges who decide in a case-by-case -case manner. And then the regulatory law, which is comprised of prior restraints, which cause those who are innocent of any culpable act action, nonetheless, to be considered law violators. And to be given none of the constitutional protections, by the way, that Article Three courts have under the Constitution or even the fourth, fifth, sixth amendments to the constitution, they're inapplicable in the regulatory law context, even though property is taken away and liberty is taken away by the regulatory state. Thank you, Jonathan. Jason, did you wanna jump in? Well, I wanna ask a very general question. Um, Please. Uh, C. Bradley Thompson wrote a book called America's Revolutionary Mind, and um, which is a very good book uh, that, I, that I interviewed him also for. So I, he thinks, you know, uh, that there is something uh, quite American about, about uh, America's founding fathers that we are the legacies of, and we have become quite, we have embodied something called the, uniquely the American mind, which is very different from Canada. Trudeau says that we are identityless people and we have no identity. Um, and I said, poof to that. So my question to Jonathan is, do you think there's something that is uniquely, that we can call uniquely the American mind, A, and B, do you think America, as we stand today with 
the authoritarian movements, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, um, certain white, white supremacist movements, um, just the authoritarian movements that are on the, on the run, especially galvanized by this administration, I think. Um, has America lost? So do you think that there is something unique about them? Is there an American mind that you can spot? And has America lost its American mind? Are we, are, or are we in danger of losing our American mind right now? Well, there is a uniquely American legal and social uh, construct that, that arises from our tradition in, in defense of individual liberty that is most aptly described, and I agree with Professor Thompson in this respect, um, in the in the Declaration of Independence. In the second paragraph of the Declaration, a brilliant Thomas Jefferson brilliantly summarized the essence of, of America for all time. Um, and that brilliant exposition in the second paragraph is etched on the the DNA of every person who is who is an American, whether grafted onto America or born here. It's why, why we come here if we're not from here. It's why we are proud of ourselves if we live here. And I say ourselves because you can't derive a sense of self-worth from something that someone else gave to you by virtue of the exercise of state power. You derive a sense of self-worth by that pursuit of happiness that is referenced in the Constitution, understood in Lockean terms, to be your effort that has been expended based on your intelligence, based on your physical talent, based on your sweat. Uh, it is that effort that gives you a sense of self-worth when in the end what you have produced is appreciated by others and, and causes others to experience a benefit of one kind or another. And that is understood all over the world, but it's understood to be uniquely American in the sense that here you're supposed to be able to do that without being lorded over constantly by government. So now we have a class and I don't believe, I think we can exaggerate their significance. I think that Joe Biden sold, sold his soul to uh, the socialists uh, and he has a socialist government is not um, indicative of what the American people think or believe. And I think what you'll find is that like, like Abraham Lincoln found, even in the midst of the Civil War, even with the socialism that was driving the South as a defense of slavery, Hegelian socialism, as I talk about in the authoritarians, you find that there are these mystic cords of memory, as he referred to, that tie us back to the Declaration. It is very hard to uh, have an understanding of America and not appreciate that our greatness is tied inextricably to our liberties. We are only great because we're free. We only have Hollywood because they're free. They have freedom of speech. We only have a, a diverse culture because we have freedom of religion and because we have this idea of property rights where individuals can actually own something for themselves. Not everywhere in the world can you say that. And when, when you combine all of these freedoms, life, liberty, and property, you have a fulsome defense of individuality because all of these are individual rights. We have to remember that rights, we don't share a notion of collective rights. Joe Biden may believe in collective rights. Uh, Kamala Harris may believe in collective rights. Um, Governor Newsom may believe in co collective rights. The squad may believe in collective rights, but the American people don't believe in collective rights. They believe they go to work and they earn something for themselves and their families. They're driven to achieve by two factors principally, to make something of value for others, that is to really make something cool. And then the other thing is to feed their families, to feed themselves and to acquire wealth because they want to have an existence that is defined by greatness or exceptionalism. 
That's what drives Americans. That's why other people outside the United States want to come here. They want to come here because they want to experience that. They want to have something of their own. They want their own plot of land. They want their own home. They want to have a, their own car. They want to have these physical things. But they also want to have pride, self-pride. They want to believe that they're doing something to help the world. And that can be uh, anything from building a home or working on an assembly line or being a lawyer or being a professor or whatever. It's just, that's where we are unique. We are driven to exceptionalism. We work harder than anyone else in the world. And we do so because we are in so many respects selfless in the sense that we're giving all of this, but we're actually selfish because we expect that if we work hard enough and if we give enough and if we change the world and make it a better place, that in the end we'll be benefited. Bill Gates may have forgotten how he got there, but he wanted to make a fortune, but he wanted to do it the old fashioned way. He didn't get it from government. He got it because he innovated and because he became a master of the market and because he hustled and was competitive. And he did that to build an empire, which he, I believe, wanted to build because it would be great for him. But he also brought up a whole lot of people with him. But once you get there, I guess you can afford to be woke or you can have an, a grandiose ideas that maybe it's not enough to be the head of a, a, a major international corporation. Maybe you need to rule the world. So there's a little bit of danger there, too. Right. But for the average American, I think they are still adherence of the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. And I think that it defines most of us. I think that these radicals who are pushing in the other direction are a minority. And I think they've pushed it probably too far. And I think we may see that in the midterm elections. Maybe not, maybe we need more socialism before we recognize its swill and regurgitate it out. But I think that we're probably already there. Jonathan uh, and Jason and those joining us, we, we have just a few more minutes. Uh, I, there's another interesting question. And also, if we had time, I, I wanted to see uh, Jonathan, maybe just a, a real um, nutshell kind of explanation of the, of the link between slavery and socialism, kind of plantation socialism. For those who have yet to, to read your book, perhaps give us a teaser on that. But I wanted to get to uh, another question on YouTube from Scott, in part because Jason and I are going to be talking about this tomorrow on Clubhouse and un unpacking uh, Jason's great question, uh, great article that uh, that he recently did on critical race theory uh, and and moral extinction. Um, so I, I'm going to ask our gremlins to also uh, throw the links both for our clubhouse chat and to Jason's article into, uh, into our chat stream. But the question from Scott is what is the relationship between critical race theory and critical legal theory and how pervasive is critical legal theory within law schools today? Critical legal theory is very pervasive and it was when I went to law school and it, it, it has been since the eighties. Um, Martin or uh, I, th I think it, well I, can, I I'm it's not Martin Reddish I was going to say Martin Reddish but it, there's there's a Harvard professor whose name escapes me at the moment who's a, who's the giant in the area of critical legal theory um, and Derek Bell pardon is it me Derek Bell is it Derek Bell yes Derek Bell for critical race theory too um, but they they were they they call themselves initially differently they they referred to themselves as deconstructionists or as essentially opponents of the Constitution, uh, as it had uh, the classical liberal view of the Constitution. And what they argued for in the area of um, uh, the 14th Amendment and uh, equal protection was this idea that the discrimination uh, is not just overt action, that it is implicit, and that, and that they created this whole argument of implied discrimination as their initial uh, movement. And so they would argue, for example, that 
affirmative action was appropriate because even though you as an individual had never discriminated against someone in your life and happened to be white, you nonetheless should lose your place at the university in favor of someone who is of color because of the history of discrimination of the people who are of color. And even though you didn't actually intend to discriminate, there is an implied discrimination or and it's implicit in the institutions that surround us. And so critical race theory is simply an application of this socialist notion of critical legal theory. Uh, again, they, they, why do I say socialist? Well, because they refer to oppressed and oppressors. They, they, rather than having the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, they have as oppressed and oppressors, they have the uh, people predicated upon race. So they imbued race into everything. They view everything as necessarily a distinction predicated upon race or gender. And, and they, they ascribe uh, all manner of ills to uh, what they say is, is an implied racism. And their cure for it is government power used to re reorient our social relationships, our economic standing and our political power. So when critical race theory comes along, this is really child abuse. And the reason why it's child abuse when it's an educational form is that it causes children of color to, be, to understand that no matter what they do in life, no matter what talents they have, no matter what education they acquire and in detail, uh, and no matter what their, their physical attributes, they nonetheless uh, will be held back by whites because of systemic racism, which is said to imbue every single institution in society, government, the private sector, education, everything is systemically racist. Why? Because it's implicit. It's implicit in these institutions and they're tainted in, 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 in inextricably and for all time because they were put together by, by a white supremacist society. And so then they take uh, white children and they also uh, engage in child abuse against them because they teach white children that they're oppressors and that no matter what they do, their pigment alone causes this uh, oppression. It's implicit. It's implicit in their pigment. And so no matter what they do, wherever they are, they will be understood by those of color to be the oppressor. And they will always have a better a shake at every opportunity in this white supremacist society. So this is what they teach kids. Now, what does this do? This causes children to hate themselves. It causes children to hate each other. It causes children to hate every institution, it causes children to hate our government, it causes them to hate the constitution. In other words, they hate being Americans. So it's no surprise then that they become revolutionaries, which is what they want them to become. And the same was true of critical legal theory as I was going through law school. I knew it was a bunch of rot and I argued against it. But the, the fact of the matter was they were indoctrinating uh, law students with a philosophy that was contrary to the Constitution, designed to destroy the Constitution as an impediment by causing these rising generation of attorneys to become activist Marxist uh, individuals. That was their hope and their goal, their aim. And it's very deceitful and it's very manipulative. And they distort history to achieve it. And they deny the uh, truths that underlie the Constitution and the, the Declaration of Independence. And they ascribe uh, uh, racist motivations to everyone, every American hero, no matter who they are. And they make those racist connotations uh, define the person, even though they may have they may have been racist. They may you can't write someone off completely because of their time and their communication if they've offered a contribution, but they nonetheless completely ignore the contributions. But they also falsely declare that the founding fathers uh, are racist. And in point of fact, they say that they were advocates of slavery, as Thompson points out in his book that Professor Hill mentioned. Um, the history is to the contrary. They were advocates of the abolition of slavery. They wanted it done through political means. They realized that individually they couldn't do it and, and survive economically. And they were in that respect subject to, to fault, but certainly they can't be faulted for creating a declaration of independence that was overtly intended to be applicable to all mankind, men, women, people of all races. 
There's a 168 word paragraph to the declaration that Jefferson wrote, which he condemns George III for the institution of slavery. And he refers to the rights of those of the, who are in bondage. And those rights are directly referenced uh, in the second paragraph. He meant for us to understand that all human beings are possessed of inalienable rights. It is false, a false statement that the declaration was a racist document. Well, thank you for that. We are perfectly at time. Uh, so I uh, wanna thank Professor Hill. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. And um, I want to uh, thank all of you who uh, joined us and uh, gave us your great questions. We are actually going to continue this conversation in, in a way uh, tomorrow on Clubhouse um, with uh, myself and Professor Hill. So uh, please go to the Atlas Society's website to our event section. I also think we just put it into our comment section, which you can see there. And I hope you'll join us. And if you are enjoying the work of the Atlas Society and believe in the importance of making the moral case imaginatively, creatively, uh, with, with fun um, and entertainment, then consider supporting the Atlas Society with a tax-deductible donation. And we will also see you next week for our discussion uh, on current events with the Atlas Society scholars. Thank you so much. By Jonathan's book. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's in the link. Okay, great. Thank you.